Welcome back to another episode of my weekly show. I'm Father Roderick, and in this episode, we're going to talk about everything that's normally on the menu, which means movies and TV shows, technology, churchy things, faith, religion, books that I've read, science and technology, and, and much, much more. So welcome, sit back, relax, and enjoy. This episode and everything I do is made possible thanks to my patrons over at patreon.com slash fatherroderick. We are going to introduce a new show for the $5 and up tier, and that is aimed specifically at uh, my followers, my current growing uh, group of followers that are uh, watching my videos on TikTok, and there is a percentage of those followers that have asked me for a long-form show about um, anime, uh, manga, but also movies like Batman and other movies that with religious symbolism. So I'm going to focus that show particularly on uh, like a deep dive into the religious meanings and and potential hidden meanings and layers of uh, uh, of popular stories uh, in any form but mostly i will focus on on what you can watch on netflix or uh, in the movie theater and uh, uh th so that show is going to be an extra perk for those of you that have subs sub subscribed to the five dollar and up tier so the, the more you give, the, the more you get, of course. So, uh, but, but most of you are supporting me not to get something in return, but because you, you love what I do and you want to help me in my mission. And I really appreciate that. But I've also noticed that um, the, the TikTok followers are really eager to hear me talk a little bit more in, in a long-form format about the stuff that I present to them in the TikTok videos. Um, but I cannot stretch myself like butter over too many sandwiches. Uh, and so that's why I'm putting it on Patreon. It may actually reduce the overall reach of that show, uh, but I'm also thinking of maybe doing um, part of those shows on TikTok, and, or sorry, part of those shows on, on Patreon and make, make them exclusive to Patreon supporters and then doing a, a, a part of those shows on YouTube, which is kind of my long-term, long-form video platform. Let me know if you are a follower on YouTube, if that's something you'd be interested in. And if so, what you would like me to talk about. One thing I can I can come up with myself, I would love to do an, a deep dive, like a rewatch of the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. I think there is a lot of stuff that I would like to talk about that I haven't seen in other reviews um, and, and, and rewatch uh, uh, summary shows. So that's something I would like to do. And then maybe also... Um, go go back to some of my favorite movies or television shows. Uh, um, there, I've had a lot of requests asking me to do a rewatch of Daredevil, um, the series that was on Netflix for two years, and that is unfortunately not available on Netflix in the Netherlands right now. They are moving it to Disney, but it may actually be on Disney right now. But for for a, for a while, it was never nowhere to be found. And of course, Daredevil, the character of Daredevil, has Catholic background, and it's a it's it's a theme that that is uh, recurring in the three seasons that have been filmed so far. So that would also be uh, something that I may want to do in long form because. These segments on my regular podcasts are too small. TikTok videos like two, three minutes. 
So I'm still kind of working this out. Um, as you know, for for um, my TikTok, I constantly say TikTok because I've I've got TikTok on my mind today. I got to make two new TikTok videos. But for my Patreon followers, I also make uh, three other podcasts. So you've got the Gospel for Geeks. We've got the Extra Mile, which is kind of like the Walk, but it's a bit more personal than the Walk. And um, I've got Father Roderick to the max. And good news for those of you that are afraid that I'm going to cancel Father Roderick to the max. In fact, we're going to make that another live show. Um, And you know that I do a community hour with Inge every Friday. It's our afternoon for most of our viewers, our live viewers. That's early in the morning. Um, but we talk about stuff. Uh, and and uh, Inge and I, we, we have a lot of common interests uh, with the community. And so we, we are planning to turn that hour, that community hour, into a recording, uh, but more interactive recording of Father Roderick to the max. And so a lot of the topics that were part of that uh, podcast um, are going to have... Uh, are, are going to have a room or we will make room for those topics in that community hour and that will also be made available as a podcast so we're just increasing <laughs> the goodies for those of you that are part of the patreon community so this may be another reason for you to check out the page on patreon.com slash father Roderick. do you know what's going on this is what's happening in your world said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. I have some sad news. Arturo has died. You may have, you may remember that, that Arturo. It's a stray cat that lived in the backyard of Father Henry's rectory. And for eight months, I've lived at the, in the attic of Father, Roderick, Father Henry's rectory while I was waiting for the renovation of the house where I currently live. And so I was quickly introduced to, um, to Arturo. It was an old black and white, like a tu- tuxedo cat, uh, who in every morning um, and every evening would be around the kitchen door looking for food. And Father Henry had given him a box where he could sleep if the weather was bad, but sometimes for several days or even weeks he would be gone uh so he clearly was used to living on the streets but he knew that he could always come to father henry's rectory for uh for some milk and and some food now arturo is a very old cat you could tell because his whiskers were kind of all over the place his his uh tail was a bit crooked his whole posture just showed that he was an, an aging cat. He always walked a, a much slower than other cats. The problem is with cats, of course, you never know for sure how old they are. Um, and cats have a tendency to hide uh, their weaknesses. Or if a cat is ill, um, you really have to pay good attention because they won't show the world that they are ill. Because, of course, in... In, in, in nature, that is a disadvantage. You may become an easy prey for predators. So that made it sometimes difficult to see um, what what his state was. Sometimes he would just disappear for, for days and days, and then it would come back, and he would have scratches. And, or, um, so he, he probably was also involved in, in fights and everything. Um, and uh, he was also not socialized. It's clearly a cat that has never been a pet, and so he was very, very 
um, wary of people and it took months basically to to get him to approach while we were there so normally we would give him food and then we'd have to close the kitchen door and only then he would approach very carefully and the moment he heard a sound he would he would run away um, and so it took a lot of patience uh, to build up that trust and towards the end of my stay at Father Henry's rectory I I was he was so comfortable with me I have to always invert inverted with cats um, that he let me just be very close to him while he was drinking his milk or eating his food. I never was able to touch him. That he didn't allow. Uh, and I think there were only a few people, because I was, of course, not the only one taking care of him, but in the end, only a few people, like two people, were able to pet him, that he would allow that. But most of the time, he would hiss at anyone who would approach him. So, uh, and, and, and you know what? In a way, that made... It's such an interesting animal. For me, it was the first time that I've been exposed for a prolonged time to a cat. My parents always had dogs. Um, and when I was in seminary for 10 years, we didn't. there were no pets in, in the seminary. Uh, so for me, this was a, a totally new type of animal that I had to, uh, to get accustomed with. But I always felt a bit like, like Arturo was my soulmate. Um, I had just been basically kicked out of my previous parish. I was without a home, literally. Um, I was staying at Father Henry's rectory just as Arturo was staying at the rectory be- because we were homeless. We, we, my house was, was not ready yet. And so, uh, and I also loved to learn from Arturo that with a lot of patience, you can build up trust, even with a stray cat. And And that was a, I think an important life lesson for me too, that trust is not something that you can just presuppose is there. It takes a lot of kindness, a lot of consistency, a lot of gentleness and patience for that to grow. And it's very brittle. It can also disappear. So sometimes uh, when when Arturo had been away for, for several days, it would, again, take him some time to trust us again to get used to my voice again and especially since i moved out of the rectory uh in october last year um i sometimes weeks would pass and i wouldn't have seen him so if if he was in the garden and i would be there it it really was kind of like a reacquaintance he did recognize my voice though every time i heard my and he would hear my voice he would follow me to the kitchen door because he knew he remembered that i was the one who always gave him food for well for eight months and so uh the lesson that i learned from this is uh as a priest who works in the media of course i i get in touch with a ton of people uh and a lot of them may look at me as Arturo looked at me in the beginning. Like, very wary. This is a guy, this is a priest. You cannot trust priests. They have this whole idea, uh, these preconceptions, based on other experience, based on what they've seen in the news, based on kind of the stereotypical image that people have of priests and of the priesthood, that priests are, you know, not people you want to hang out with. And so... Uh, very often, especially when I do a live stream, um, just this morning I did a live stream after I was done recording my TikToks, so I was still in the forest, um, and I went live. 
And then most people are kind, especially if they are part of my community there and they, they are very encouraging or they will ask questions. But there are always, every single time I go live, there are people that attack me, that, that are making very nasty remarks. Uh, yeah, very insulting sometimes. And that I've learned, Arturo has, have, have, has taught me that not to worry about that too much that is their kind of their defense mechanism they don't want to get hurt they 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 feel that maybe this is a menace for their way of life their view on the world maybe and and they may have very good reasons to be very um suspicious of of the church and of the priests uh, especially, of course, with this relentless, you know, for years and years and years, um, there have been so many abuses in 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 the churches. It's not just the Catholic Church, of course, but but uh, there's there's been so much evil that has come to light that was perpetrated by by church people. So, can you blame them? It's like a cat who has always the the, the, the only in, the only interaction that Arturo had with with humans was. Like people that could pose a, a threat to him, uh, cars in the streets, uh, loud people, people maybe chasing him from uh, from their gardens. So, if if you've never gotten to know people, humans, then of course you are careful. And so, uh, but I've I've learned, thanks to Arturo, that if you put it, if you keep being friendly, if your your own behavior constantly contradicts the image that people might may have of you or cats may have of you, over time they will discover that wait a minute, there's nothing to fear here. I can approach. I will still be on my guard, but hey, I'll get closer. And so, and and it's not something you can force. The moment I would step towards Arturo, especially in these early months, he would run away again. So again, it's also it, it requires a lot of restraint and patience from my part, not to want to force uh, or enforce a, a, a certain relationship with my followers. It is their gift to me, but I cannot. It's it's not something I have a right to, and so my uh, my attitude when people attack me is always I ignore it, just as I would ignore the hissing of Arturo. It would be a signal that, oh, these people have been hurt uh, by the church. They have their reasons. Who am I to, 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 to judge why they are behaving like that? Uh, but it, it, it signals me that I have to be extra careful and extra kind and extra patient. So that's what I always try to do. I, I try to be as authentic as possible, just show people that I'm there not to fight, not to attack someone's beliefs, not to impose my views on them. I'm here to share something that I'm enthusiastic about, something I want to give. I'm just as with Arturo. I wasn't. I I didn't want to pet Arturo. Uh, I didn't want to turn him into you know like a domesticated cat. I just wanted to give him some food and. My only reward was to see that he enjoyed eating. And, and, and every little step that he made towards me, every tiny bit of extra trust that he would give me over time, 
that in itself was always for me a reason to be grateful because you know this is something that the cat gives to me and so i'm i'm sad that that he passed away he died just of old age uh father henry visited me yesterday and he, he warned me he says i think arturo's dying um he didn't he didn't eat anymore and they found him in the garden uh and he was lying in the in the bushes a little bit hidden and even though it was raining outside he was still kind of crawled up against the wall um barely reacted anymore and uh i posted a photo on on social media uh, one of the last photos that i took of him and and it was always very hard to make him look at the camera because normally <laughs> he would just look at the food and he was even a bit shy and cats in general don't like to look you in the eye um so also taking that photo took a lot of patience but every once in a while we would just look up and then i would take the picture and in this when i looked for this what's the last picture that i took of arturo i found this this nice close up of him um and this was while he was eating something that i uh gave him i can tell now in hindsight that it, that he looks very old and tired and he was probably already sick at that moment and uh so he still lived for because that photo was taken a couple of weeks ago um uh, i'm i'm not surprised i am sad on the other hand i'm thinking it was his time um cats of course don't live as long as humans regularly do and uh and i'm 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 glad that he was able to die peacefully uh, i was always a bit worried that if he would you know be on the street that maybe he would be attacked by dogs or run over by by the cars there are a lot of busy roads around uh, father henry's uh, rectory and instead he just died like most wild animals would do they just crawl away they they try to hide they they usually uh, animals in general uh, they don't die heroically in front of the camera they 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 die in a little place where where it's peaceful they it's almost as if they go to sleep so yeah we never brought him to the to the to the vet uh we didn't and, and even when when now that he was getting so sick and father henry could tell that he was in his last phase uh he said i i don't want to bring him to the vet because they're just going to euthanize him and it's going to just give him a lot more extra stress so let's just let let's let let's nature run its course and and that's what happened and i had no idea that arturo would die the, the same day that i got the news they buried him um and i'm sure i'm not the only one who will who will miss him arturo thank you uh, you were a wonderful friend and you taught me a lot <laughs> not like movies they're predictable like the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father not liking movies is like not liking puppies they're fine i just get bored and never make it to the end you know you need a movie education you need a movication i'm going to give it to you I'm only now starting to discover uh the television function on my what is it internet cable little box. So when I got internet fiber internet here at the rectory, 
um, they they also gave me this little box that I could hook up to the television uh, that has um, digital television and. I just didn't care for it because who wants to watch television live these days with all the advertisements? But I noticed when I was browsing through the menu, uh, which is just a bit clunky if you're used to you know, Netflix or, or Prime Video. You're always so used to just seeing the program. I want to see this program. Here you have to kind of browse through a timeline of all these channels. And then if you're browsing back and forth, you only see like 12 channels and then you have to go to the next 12 channels and then do all the browsing again. It's a very, very cumbersome way of finding what you want to watch. But I noticed there was this little green icon of, a, of a, an arrow, a circular arrow, and I discovered that, that the television service actually has a, a rewatch function. So even if you've missed the program uh, in real life, you, you can still... Uh, download it or or stream it from the, the the cache, I suppose, of the of the provider. And so I found this one channel that has Lego Masters on it. And uh, Lego Masters is a show. I think it's in its third season, maybe fourth season already. Um, and it's very similar to the concept of MasterChef. Uh, MasterChef was this one. Uh, idea. It came from the UK. It was a very popular show there where a group of contestants would cook for uh, three chefs. And then every episode, um, the, the one who did the worst uh, had to leave the building until you would have these two best amateur cooks left. And then, of course, only one becomes the master chef. Um, that concept was so popular that they started to... Uh, copy it in many different countries. And one of my favorite versions of MasterChef has always been MasterChef Australia. And it's because of both the quality of the, of the show, which looks and just the whole, the whole way it's edited and, and presented is so good, even compared to the original UK version, um, that it's super entertaining to watch. And the both the guests and the hosts are are genuine. They they are kind. Um, and it's uh, if you've ever seen MasterChef uh, in, in in the United States, the American version, they have got Gordon Ramsay, who is of course not an American uh, chef, but they hire him because he is so you know exuberant. Let's put it that way. Um, but that whole show feels very scripted and over the top and mean. People are mean. The judges are mean. The contestants are, are mean to, towards each other. Whereas the Australian version had kind of this sense of joy, the joy of cooking. And even if someone would have to leave the show, uh, there would be this outpour of sympathy. Um, and, and that alone, I think, was making it such a joy to watch. Well, the Lego Masters that I've now discovered, I think, is, is produced... In the same way, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was actually the same building where they also film MasterChef. It's got that same, it's the same size. That instead of the pantry, it's a pantry full of Lego. The camera work, the lights, the even the style, the vibe of the show feels similar to MasterChef Australia. Instead of three judges, you only have two. One is the main host of the show. And then you've got the Lego master, who is apparently a very experienced Lego builder. I'm not sure he may actually even be employed by the Lego company. 
And the two of them give uh, instructions to the contestants. And, and every show usually has two phases. So it's two challenges. One is a first challenge where they can win, for instance, immunity or they get an extra perk or something like that. And the second one is the elimination challenge. And uh, just like MasterChef, it starts with this general, you know, big project, make something nice. It's very much whatever you want to do, carte blanche. And then uh, that, of course, immediately shows you all the different types of couples. There are always like two people that are working together uh, on, on these projects. And uh, you, you get it. That This is where you see kind of the scripted nature of almost any reality show. Here, too, of course, the contestants are not randomly chosen. It's not just people that are good at building Lego. They always make sure, because this is television, that every couple is different. It's different style. It could be two bearded guys or two brothers or two ladies that are uh, very much have the same hobbies and are all into musical and singing and are very you know colorful people. Um, uh, you may have uh, um, uh, people from from different cultures, different uh, um, ethnic groups, and they all. Uh, the, what I love is is the, is the diversity of the people, the builders reflects itself in the diversity of the stuff that they build. I've been very impressed by the quality of what they build. I had no idea that there were so many people that can just look at like a whole pantry full of Lego and then know exactly how they're going to create these huge builds. And some of them are so beautiful that I would actually would want to buy them if, if, if Lego would sell them. Now, of course, this is a Lego show. So the main purpose, the reason that Lego is involved is, of course, they want to keep people interested in, in Lego. And this is geared towards, maybe also towards kids, but mostly towards adults. And Lego, of course, makes most of its money thanks to adults. Even when it comes to their children's Lego, it's the adults that will buy it. It's the parents that will gift it. And so if you get parents motivated to build with Lego themselves, then, of course, it enhances the, <laughs> the chances that they will also gift Lego to their children. They want to pass it on. Just like parents that, are, that love Star Wars are, make, are going to make sure that their children will also be introduced and inducted into this wonderful galaxy of lightsabers and Jedi. So uh, in that respect, it's, it's a multi-generational show, um, which, of course, ultimately is, is commercial in nature. But at the same time, it's got a good vibe. It's funny. It's creative. Um, it's got all that tension of the clock ticking down. Sometimes they get like eight hours for one project. And then I, I, I pity the people that have to edit everything together and the hosts, of course, because they have to be there for eight hours. And the only thing the hosts do is like during those eight hours is having some chats with the contestants and then... Every hour, they say, one hour less on the clock. And then towards the end, of course, they get to judge the various, uh, the various constructions. But also, what I also noticed is um, um, that sometimes the, the decisions who leaves the show are also probably the result of not just the two, the two main hosts or, who are deciding. There is usually a whole team that you never see, and they will make sure 
that the right people leave at the right moment. And, and, and very often that has already been pre-decided. It's, it sounds unfair, but it, this is television, so they want to keep the best and the most interesting people until the last moment. And this is also the case with MasterChef. However, even though they may have their, their plan, like they, they know more or less who, how they want, who they want to have left at the end, there, there are still moments where the contestants, even the good contestants, can mess up. That's why you always have this final selection of the two of the worst. They do this on purpose. So that they can always, one, maybe a couple that has just messed up. They completely miscalculated. They may be very, very uh, much in the running for the finale, but they just didn't have their day. That they made a mistake or, you know, when it's cooking, anything can happen while you're cooking. So there can always be this disaster state you don't, you, you can't predict. And then there's always this other couple that is, you know, or the, the other contestant that is actually scheduled to leave the show. And, and this is usually, you know, based on, like, they watch the contestants the entire day, they make a planning, and then, you know, they have a meeting while, the, while they're still cooking or while they're still building their Lego stuff. And then, you know, like, I think we need to get rid of this couple or this contestant. And so how are we going to do this? Because these guys, we need them to stay because they're very good. There were these two brothers and they were amazing. Their technique was out of this world. But then they had to make this like little scene for a space shuttle. So the idea was that the space shuttle takes off and every contestant or every couple gets to make something that goes with, to Mars. And, and so you had these two brothers and they were so good. And, and every episode they won except for this one. It was just gray and drab, and there was a lot of discord among them, and that was reflected in the build. And it was, for me, absolutely the worst of the bunch. But they, of course, wanted to keep those brothers a bit longer because they are so good, technically. Um, they're just a little bit stubborn. And then there, was, uh, there were a couple of other couples that are kind of middle of the road. They're good but nothing too special. And so you could tell, even in the previous episode, I was already, and I, I know these things because I work in television. So I've, I've actually been part of a reality show many, many years ago where I've seen, I've seen the other side of what's happening, you know, what the contestants don't know. And so, but uh, I could already tell in the second episode who was going to leave in the third one. Because they were already showing, they were building it up. They were preparing the, the viewers for, you know, yeah, they're nice people, but they're still, like every, every episode there's something that doesn't, that doesn't feel right. So the moment that these people leave, you're like, yeah, obviously. And so that's what, what happened in the final, you know, when these two worst couples stepped forward, um... I was like, you know, based on just this one build, I would send these brothers home. But I can, I, I see that they've been working towards the the uh, the elimination of the other couple, which is ultimately what happened. And and there's always something that you can say that is positive of the of one thing and, and negative. So that's why this like, but because technically your your build was so good, that's why you survive and the others go home. So you can spin that both ways. This is this is a part of the kind of the 
the storytelling that is taking place. And you also have to keep in mind that the editing is done much, much later. These contestants are vowed to secrecy for months. and Because the editing takes months of a, a reality show. It's not that every day they, they put this together. And so when the editor starts working on an episode, they already know who's going to leave. So they will focus on the winners and on the losers. And the ones that are kind of in between, that are not in any particular danger, you will barely see their interaction with the hosts. So the editing is part of the kind of the preconceived storytelling. This, this is how television works. I hope I'm not scandalizing you too much. But it is a form of storytelling. Even though it, it is called reality TV, it's not that real. It's all very, very much a selection of reality. Um, but it's Lego. It's colorful. People are, it, it's fun to watch. And the people are generally very nice, uh, even when they lose. And so it's, it's, uh, it's a good show to watch. And it really makes me go, go back and, and build some more Lego. <laughs> Catholics rock! Here at the Peculiar Bunch, we're always happy to tell you everything you always wanted to know about Catholics, about church, about faith, but you were afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. Oh, meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? And of course, in this episode, I need to expand upon the unfortunate death of my dear Arturo. Do cats go to heaven? Man, you guys got more crazy rules than blockbuster video. This is a recurring question that I have been asked many, many times by my parishioners, mostly by the younger parishioners, but also sometimes some older parishioners, when their favorite pet dies, whether it's their favorite horse that they've been taking care of for 15 years, or their dog, their cat, their little bunny rabbit, or sometimes even their fish, you know. Do animals go to heaven? The reason that they ask this question is that they never hear a definitive answer uh, on uh, on this question. You know, do cats go to heaven? What what does the church say about this? Most people don't know that much about about Catholic doctrine, um, and that's not they're not to blame because nowadays it's very difficult. It's very hard to find good teaching. Um, and, and most people will, the only thing they know about church is basically their own experience, and sometimes it's what they just know from the news. You're not going to learn much about the contents of the faith if you just look at church news, because news is not focused on contents, it's focused on what is interesting, what is what is uh, what makes a contrast, what makes us go, huh? Um, so... Uh, I think that most people are, are familiar with the concept of heaven <laughs> and the idea that, that Christians believe that there is a heaven, that so that people go to heaven. Um, but even in, in that concept is usually looked at in a very stereotypical way, like God is good, God is love, so there is heaven. And hell, yeah, that was a thing that people used to believe way back when. In the primitive, in the dark ages, <laughs> it's usually a misnomer for the Middle Ages, um, and and so people are well. Everybody who dies goes to heaven, and in, in a lot of uh, even in the liturgy, 
during funerals, you will see this kind of naive idea of the afterlife in the way they pe- that people talk about uh, their beloved, uh, their dearly beloved. It's always like, now that you're in heaven, and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. <laughs> it's, it's not that straightforward. Um, there, the, the, the whole idea of heaven, of course, is something that is biblical. It's based on, on the Bible. Um, and mostly on the New Testament, what does Jesus say about life after death? And Jesus is very specific. He, he confirms that there is a resurrection. He says it when he's confronted with the death of a good friend of him, Lazarus. And he tells the sisters of Lazarus that, you know, uh, Lazarus will live and everyone will live even if they die, if they, have, if they trust Jesus, if they hold on to him. So that's comforting. But then there's also this concept of hell, which is also biblical. And also Jesus talks about this possibility that people totally refuse God's love. And then God is basically powerless. Sounds strange to say that about God. But God is powerless when he's confronted with our free will. God wanted us to have free will. Um, because only people... Only souls that have a free will, only beings that are are created with a free will are able to love uh, because love has to be free. If we're all just robots, then yeah, we may never uh, get out of line, but then robots cannot love. They They may be able to simulate it like with artificial intelligence, but it's not, it's not real. It's not self aware. Um, and it's not free. So, this is the big risk that God took when he created us humans and when he created the angels. He gave the spiritual beings, angels, and the beings that are composed of both a body and a soul, gave them free will with the built-in risk that people and angels could use that free will not to answer with love, but to answer with rejection. This is the big drama in in the in the book of Genesis, that is repeated through through the generations. That sometimes people with the free will, that which is an amazing gift, they still use that free will not to do good, but they choose to do evil, because they want they want something that is good for them, and they want it right now. Uh, but it but they may disregard what that means for other people. Um, and they may actually even misjudge what is truly good for, for you. I mean, that's what we do all the time. When we, when we eat junk food, we, we want it now because we're hungry and it tastes so good, but we don't really take into consideration what it does to our overall health over time. That's just one example where we choose something because we label it as good. Oh, it's finger-licking good. But is it truly good? That's the question, of course, that you have to ask have to try to answer uh, and this is also how you progress spiritually in your relationship with God it's always asking yourself God is this truly good for me is this the good that you want me to pursue or should I look elsewhere and so the question of course is in to which extent do animals have free will um, because the free will in itself is a fundamental aspect of angels and humans that set us apart from other beings, cre- creations of God, that have a soul, but 
that there is a like a whole range of a whole variety of degrees in which these uh, plants or animals, um, you know, is is there a free will in animals, or are animals mostly driven by instinct? This is where it gets tricky because, of course, the the whole theology of free will and of the soul stems uh, when it comes to Catholic theology from uh, Thomas of Aquinas, who lived in the Middle Ages. And he, of course, had a a, a view of um, human psychology, uh, of biology, of the animal world, the plant world, that was based on what was known in his time. And for a long time, uh, mankind in general, this is not just some you know, obscure Catholic theo- theologians in the Dark Ages, but people have had a very, um, let's say, superficial view of their own relationship to the rest of creation. And it's only much more recently, thanks to science and the progress in biology and our knowledge of evolution, that we are starting to understand that there's actually, yes, there's a huge difference between humans and animals, but there are certain types of more evolved animals that are actually very showing a lot of uh, abilities, a lot of... Um, behavior that is super close to how humans behave. And we've also learned, thanks to psychology and sociology and the study of human behavior, that a lot of the things that we have always labeled throughout history as typically human are actually very, very, very similar to what animals would do. And a lot of the things that we, a lot of our behavior that we have always assumed was 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 guided by our free will and our rational decisions are actually very much driven by our brains and the way our brains function by uh, the chemical makeup of our existence by impulses by um, a behavior that has been inherited uh, by neurological problems uh, sometimes. And so a lot of our behavior is involuntary. And, of course, free will in, in itself is, is super important and is one of the things that, that, that makes uh, us so worthy of, of respect. Um, we, we are, uh, we've all been given this gift of free will, but... We've also noticed that that there are we, we know that a lot of people, um, their their the potential that is in them, is somehow hampered by the physical nature of of their body and their brains, and so a child, you know, a little child, uh, just a, a newborn baby, has been given this gift of free will, but is not exercising it yet. So it's there in potential, and if you nurture this kid and it stays healthy and it grows up over time it will learn to use this this gift that was there already what well what 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 Thomistic theology would would say in in as a potential 
and and it doesn't mean that it's like maybe it's there. It's not like Schrodinger's cat. Maybe it's there. Maybe it's not there. Uh, no, it is definitely there. It just has to still grow. It needs a lot of nurturing for it to fully, you know, evolve into uh, uh, in, into a a formed, well formed conscience and uh, a human being that is able to balance life. Uh, so this is also what why the Catholic Church um, does not consider the whole question of abortion, for instance, as purely a, a religious thing. It's based on um, a certain anthropological view, so a view of 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 what what constitutes a human being as uh, a, a being that has been given the potential of free will, of self-realization, even the gift of discovering God, provided, of course, that that potential grows to its fulfillment through nurture, through protection. It has to be protected. And so even a child before it's born already has that potential. It's it's kind of, that's part of the wonder of creation. When I was just a few cells, I still already had in me all the potential that is now, only now, when I'm 54 years old, is 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 starting, is evolving. And it's, it's still evolving and it's still growing and I'm still learning. All that was, is, not something that was just there the moment I was born. It was there right from the get-go, but in a potential form. So all that to say that when it comes to animals, of course, you have to wonder if animals themselves may also, to a certain extent, and it depends, of course, on the degree of the complexity of, of an animal, may also have, uh, partially at least, a free will. I, I love to go to uh, the zoo here near Arnhem. And so, of course, there is a part of the zoo is dedicated to more evolved... And evolved, that's it's not a... Uh, I'm not saying it's superior, but there's definitely more complex life forms, like, for instance, monkeys or gorillas or, you know. And so you can tell in their behavior that a lot of that behavior is is part of, of their instinct, and its uh, instinct is a result of evolution. Um, but you can also see that some of these animals are, you know, curious or kind to one another. They may help each other. And, and you have to wonder, is that just purely like almost like a program? Or is this more a reflection of the goodness that is in God, the Creator? And in to which extent can animals also reflect something of the imprint of the creator? And maybe it's not as evolved as our human behavior, but it's still something you have to take into account. And, and so our whole view of the animal world is much more nuanced than it was around the time that Thomas Aquinas wrote about animal and plant souls that are not eternal because, well, it's just animals and just plants, whereas mankind, that is something totally different. They are they have free will. They can love. They are self-aware. Well, you know what? I think if Thomas Aquinas had lived today, he would probably be a bit more careful in the way he would, he would uh, um, uh, formulate his, his theology. And then, of course, the, the ultimate, the reason that I started this whole topic is which souls are eternal. And according to Thomas Aquinas, only the human souls and the angelic souls are eternal. 
plants and animals, they yes, they have a soul, but it's just for the here and now. And when they die, it's over. And I think if if you if you look at at the way our our whole view of creation and of all these living beings that surround us has evolved, I think also our theology needs to evolve, and to say that there are degrees of of complexity of of awareness. And where do you, where do you put the limit? You know, maybe it is in a flow, and why would we limit God's ability to recreate the world and the universe and all that it contains to just humans? If God created this amazing galaxy in which we live with this uh, completely mind-boggling complexity and this vastness of space and the stars and the star systems, way more than we can ever fully comprehend, if if we believe, if we keep believing in that God is the creator of all that, then why all of a sudden we think of the afterlife as just being us on a little cloud, like a metaphor of the, you know, it's just, it's just humans and angels. I would say that may actually be underestimating the creativity of God. And so if God can recreate us, which is something that Jesus affirms, you know, we will have eternal life and there is going to be a resurrection of the body as well, and why, even though Jesus may not be very explicit about this, but why couldn't we just postulate that if if this is something that that God can do for us, and why not extend that to to the entire creation? Jesus talks about the birds in the sky and the flowers, and that are here today and gone tomorrow, but he uses himself that imagery to illustrate that every life is finite, but it doesn't mean that it's. It's because it dies here that it won't have any way of like that won't be part of the recreation of the of the resurrection. Um, so I would say, as a theologian, it's something we cannot be we cannot have a definitive answer. We can just just like so many things, we cannot really definitively say it's this or that. But we can say, well, hey, keep in mind that God is incredibly infinitely creative. And if we can revive things, like think of people that are posting videos, how they revive an old car. They find this rusty wreck of, a, of an old-timer car, and then they spend months and months and months make, making it new, and, and it shines, and it's beautiful again, and they, they redo the entire engine. If we can do that with old, rusty car wrecks, I would say all the more reason to believe that God can, can recreate anything that dies and perishes. Um, so will we see Arturo again in heaven? Will he be a different cat? Honestly, I can't say. But what I can say is that we will probably be very, very surprised to discover what kind of life God has in store for us after this one. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? No, Iron Man has not been the only one who did the reading. I did a lot of reading uh, this past week. I'm still current with my Goodreads list, and I have a number of books that I, uh, that I wanted to briefly touch upon. First of all, I read a book written by none other than Roger Moore, who played the legendary 007. 
special agent Bond, James Bond. Uh, of course, he uh, took over the role from Sean Connery and George Lazenby. And for many years, he's been uh, the James Bond for an entire generation. He's been the defining James Bond. I grew up with, with Roger Moore playing James Bond, and it's only later on that I discovered Sean Connery in the older movies that came out before I was born. And so uh, these, the book is called The 007 Diaries, and it is literally a diary that Roger Moore wrote while he was filming his uh, first James Bond movie. Uh, I think it was Never Say Never Again, or was it Live and Let Die? No, it's not, not Never Say Never Again. That's the one where they brought back Sean Connery. That's a whole different story. But um, no, it's Live and Let Die. Uh, amazing, amazing movie. And it's funny. They So apparently this diary has not been reprinted for decades. Uh, it, was a, it, it was published on the instigation of, a, I think, a publisher that approached more. Uh, maybe you can keep a diary and then we'll publish it. So it was published in the 70s. And then for decades it was out of print and only recently a couple of years ago they decided to reprint it to reissue it and it's a, it's a joy to read i've listened to the audiobook version of it which is not read by by roger moore because he's deceased obviously um but it's it's read by someone who has a similar voice um it's a, it's a it's a really a pleasure to listen to the diary and and it's also pretty amazing to listen to these stories of a young Roger Moore, who is still so new to the role, has to prove himself to the world, but already has everything that made him such an iconic James Bond. Uh, he's got the humor, like tongue-in-cheek. He's, he's got class. He's, he's, I don't know, there's something about his whole lifestyle that, that even in, in his life offset, uh, that is very much fitting for the kind of James Bond that he pers personified. So, of course, this is, was, a, was in the glory times of Hollywood, and this was a big-budget production that was also filmed, uh, of course, in the UK, Pinewood Studios and, uh, and everything. Uh, but they traveled the world, and it was the time where movie stars were really movie stars, celebrities, and there was no internet. So every time that people would meet him it would be either because they were filming in a city and then people would hear the rumor mill and they would show up and and try to get a glimpse of of this uh, uh of, of this uh, big star or it would be through interviews on television on radio in newspapers in magazines and so it was a very different world and that is one of the reasons that i enjoyed reading his diary so much you get this first-hand account of how it was to film this movie, and again, if you are not familiar with the, the the craft of television making or movie making, it may surprise you that the entire movie is filmed completely out of sequence. Uh, like the the leading Bond girl is only there for two weeks, and and it's like like they've been filming for for weeks and weeks and weeks with action scenes and boats and cars and 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 and, and special effects and stunts. And then it went, and uh, then uh, the lady so and so showed up again, um, and uh, uh, we had a week of filming, and so we filmed a number of scenes where I had to make love to her, and uh, and then and then I never saw her again. 
<laughs> like, yeah, all right, yeah. That's how movies are made, you know? She only has a few scenes and a few lines, so she doesn't have to be there for, for weeks and weeks. But Roger Moore, of course, had to be there in every single scene. Um, it's also interesting to, to learn that in those days, when they would film a close-up of the actor who was, for instance, driving a bus, like in this movie, there's this, this uh, chase sequence, Roger Moore is actually driving the bus. Because they could, they couldn't do face replacement. They would have for like scenes that were filmed from far away. They would use stuntman, um, but for in a lot of you know more close up or medium shot action scenes, Roger Moore had to do the stuff himself. Otherwise, people would immediately see that it's not him. So that's interesting to read as well. And it, it, filming a James Bond movie is quite an ordeal, and he's it's it's tough, and he's been sick. He's had injuries on set, and he, he, because it's a diary, he would just write that down, I suppose. Not every day, but maybe every weekend he would sit down and write down a few notes, and maybe there's been a ghostwriter who kind of fleshed it out. But um, nevertheless, it's a very interesting insight in how they made movies in the 70s. And it's also, that's the only downside of reading this book. It, it is about a world that is no longer there. He he references people like famous actors or actresses or or directors and you're like whoa i may have heard that name that's a long time ago a lot of these people were super famous when he wrote his diaries and now we're like completely forgotten also shows you a bit how relative fame can be and how quickly in in one generation people will have completely forgotten i'm talking about roger moore because i i grew up with him a lot of you, my listeners, a lot of my followers on social media, that was the James Bond of their parents or even grandparents. So, yeah, keep that in mind when you're when you're looking for fame and fortune on social media. It's it's here today, gone tomorrow. <laughs> Another book very different that I read is called The Happiest Man on Earth, and this is a book the title uh, is not at all what the what the book actually is. It's the, the account, the eyewitness account of someone who, uh, a, a Jewish man who lived in Germany and was sent to, uh, to a concentration camp and barely escaped from it. His name is Eddie Jaku. Um, and in 1938, for no other reason than that he was from a Jewish family, he wasn't even... Pr- practicing his faith he was sent to a concentration camp he makes a few escapes uh and but for seven years he first was uh, in in buchenwald and later on in auschwitz um and almost all his family and friends were killed were murdered but because he had a few qualities so he was um good at at repairing stuff so for almost sometimes by accident he was able to save his life and to survive the holocaust and because he went through all that misery and has been confronted with the the most evil behavior almost unimaginable evil that was had taken hold of uh, of the nazis uh, you would think that he would be very damaged or very bitter Instead, he, he has vowed to smile every day. He uh, believes that it's his vocation, it's his calling to be the happiest man on earth, not just because he survived the Holocaust, but because he knows 
that by contrast, it's all about kindness and mercy and, and helping one another. That that is what leads to true happiness. So by having gone through the darkest of times, he has learned what makes our life light, light what creates light in this world. And he dedicate, dedicated the rest of his life to not only telling about that secret that has, he has discovered, but also by showing it in his own you know, his own, his own lifestyle, his own, the the choices that he makes in his life. Um, He, um, it was published when he turned a hundred. I don't even know if he's still alive. Uh, This was first published in July 28, 2020. Um, It's, it's a harrowing book to, to read, um, but also sobering. It also, you know, lately, I've been, I've been like you, confronted with a lot of discord, um, a, a lot of, a lot of fighting and anger, hatred in the media, in in my own country. I see it in in politics everywhere. There is war going on. Putin is doing. Is, is ordering his, his, his armies to do unspeakable evil. It seems like history repeats itself over and over again, and, and we just don't learn from our mistakes. And so you could, you could have a very pessimist view of where this world is heading to, and a very pessimist view on, on mankind, and maybe you will become bitter yourself or just try to just hide from it all. I think this book, for me, was a was an important book to read, because it puts things in context. There is, there has been evil, in the world. For as long as the world exists, and it's always a bit of a mystery. You, you always wonder, well, how can people become so so evil and do these things to one another? But what this book also does is showing you that you have a choice. You have a free will to choose something different. And for me. What this book encourages me to do is something that I also vowed myself to do. To smile every day, to be kind, to be patient as a priest on the internet. Not to negate that there is evil. Not to kind of brush over the evil that my own church, my own people, maybe I myself have done. But to acknowledge that, that because we have a free will, we will hurt each other from time to time we will hurt god but that's not the final that's not the final thing that's not what remains there is always the ability to do good and to repair what went wrong or what was damaged by kindness by love by mercy by forgiveness and if there's one thing i want to do in my life is to carry that out to be someone who tries to do that every day i'm not saying that i'm very good at it but I can make an effort of being kind and being patient. Even if people sometimes are like, you know, Arturo, uh, hissing at me or reacting with anger or frustration or hatred. But if I answer violence with violence, if I answer anger with my own anger, I will feel miserable myself and I will make the world more miserable. So I try to answer 
evil with, of course, with courage. And sometimes you have to fight so that evil doesn't spread. But the most effective weapon against evil and hatred and intolerance in the world is kindness. And the only one who can bring kindness in your world is you, because you don't control other people. They are not robots. You can't program them. But you can try to lure them into being kind by showing you how it's done and by showing how how much happiness that gives you. That is what this book uh, conveyed to me. And that's why I recommend it. What sort of science? Welcome back, science friends. We're almost uh, approaching the end of uh, yet another show. Uh, I want to briefly touch upon uh, a question that I've been asking myself. My, my car is old. Uh, it uh, was built in, I think, 1999. It's rusty. It's very expensive right now to, to drive an old-fashioned car. And, of course, because it's old, it's not, it's not very energy efficient. And I'm thinking either I'm going without a car, but if I ever going to get a new car, maybe I'll just switch to electric. Um, but then I'm wondering, well, but how, how good is an electrical car for, for, uh, our world in general? I mean, an electrical car does have batteries, is built with, it costs energy to build a car. It entered the energy itself that is used to drive the car. If it's an electrical car, of course, may come from solar energy or wind energy like in my country a lot of we're very good at at catching the wind and generating energy from it but not we're not there yet it's not 100 percent. so owning a car and using a car is still going to be uh it's going to leave a certain footprint um and what about those precious metals and all these rare chemicals that are part of the batteries um how sustainable is that uh, so I found this article, I'm just going to put a link in the show notes, uh, that, that kind of goes through all the pros and cons of, uh, of these uh, um, electrical cars. And in the end of the... the, the uh, wait a minute. No, may, I, I think I, I have the wrong article in front of me. I'll, I'll uh, Google it. But anyway, uh, the, the, the conclusion is that, yeah, even an electrical car is not, of course, like has it doesn't. It always has impact. The best way to save the environment and maybe also work on your health is you just take your bike. But that's not always possible. But then, if you need a car, then an electrical car is definitely still a lot a, a much better choice. And from a point of view of the environment, of course, I'm not talking about other factors, than uh, than a you know uh, an old fossil fuel car um but they're also very expensive and i really wonder if i need a car because uh, i barely use mine and um uh, and if i it, it, these very few f- few days during the year that i need a car i may as well just rent one we are on the cutting edge of technology wow well what does that mean let's plug it in it's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device, and it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff, it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. 
It's very interesting to read that uh, for the first time ever, Tim Cook has confirmed, seemingly confirmed, that yes, Apple is going to bring us an AR headset and glasses. This, of course, has been long rumored. We know that Tim Cook was very uh, vocal about you know, the, the, the potential of AR, but we never had any confirmation that they were actually working on a consumer product. Now, apparently, when speaking to China Daily in the United States, Tim Cook was asked uh, about these AR headsets, and then um, he said in a, in a response that it was important for Apple to put humanity at the center of it, uh, and that should be their priority. And then he added that uh, he couldn't be more excited about the opportunities that we've seen in this space. And then he added, a bit mysteriously, stay tuned and you'll see what we have to offer. Now, it's not like a very definitive confirmation, but you don't say stay tuned and, and, and watch, watch us uh, if you have nothing to, to follow up uh, on that. So it's, it's clear that Apple is going to introduce these AR glasses. According to the rumors, it's going to be pretty much groundbreaking what Apple is doing, just like what they always do. And the potential uh, that I gather uh, is, is, is part of Tim Cook's vision is that this device, these AR glasses, may over time even replace our, our phone. Um, because the phone itself, and I've always thought the phone kind of maybe as, a, as an accessory will be around, but not exclusively. It's still such an awkward little slab of metal and, and glass to hold in your hand. Uh, it's, it's, it's very limited what you can do with a phone. I notice that every day when I'm recording my videos, I constantly have to hold up that thing. The camera is not very good. The screen is small. I'd much rather have like the information that I'm looking for just, just projected onto my retinas. Or when you're in a car, you know, now you have to put either a phone or like a, um, a uh, what is it, like a satellite th screen or whatever in the car. But what if you, you could just project that on in your in your field of view while you're driving your car? It, you, it would save a lot of money. And so if they can master this, and the, of course the, 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 the challenge is, how do you make a, a, an operating system that works? Because with a phone, you can use your thumb. And that's been a, a, the breakthrough of the iPhone. Phones did, didn't used to have touchscreens. That's Apple who did that. And so without that technology, of course, the whole iPhone wouldn't be, uh, the whole phone industry wouldn't be what it is today. And now Apple is taking its time to, I think, do something similar for these, this whole AR, VR technology. And um, so it's not just the device. It's not just the goggles. It's also the entire philosophy. How are we going to use this? And Tim Cook affirming that humanity should be at the center shows me that this, this is probably why they, why they will win with this. They, they, they understand that this, this should be all about the way that we use technology. It's not we are making something cool and then we're going to try to convince you that you need it. No, this we should be in the center. Our needs, our whole way of operating the world. And then these glasses or whatever it is, they should adapt to us and, and enhance our lives. Uh, 
the rumors say that it's going to be very expensive, at least the first version. It's going to be around $3,000. So hmm, I'm not surprised because Apple always has a very pricey uh, uh, gear. And of course, this is so groundbreaking and new that they can ask basically anything and there are always early adopters that will buy it and there will be developers that will buy it. So I'm sure they'll make their money back. And then, of course, they they probably will charge a lot because they have to recoup their costs. They've been working on this maybe for a decade. And so over time, of course, if this starts to work and the, the, the little, you know, the early bugs and uh, have been worked out and, and developers are starting to make use of the new infrastructure and new possibilities. And over time, this will get cheaper. But I don't expect this to be very affordable for at least the first four or five years. And even then, if they charge a thousand bucks for just a phone and for these glasses that are supposed to maybe over time replace your phone, I don't think they're going to dive under... 1000. I think that will ultimately be up to all the copies. You can bet that as soon as Apple comes out with their first AR glasses, all the other Chinese and Korean manufacturers, they will all make their own version like they've done with the Apple Watch, like they've done with the phones. Samsung will probably also have their AR glasses just like they have their version of the iPad and the watch and whatnot. So over time, of course, the market will probably bring those prices down but i'm i'm mostly interested in the philosophy behind those glasses and i can't wait to see what how it will enhance our life and with that it's time to wrap up things thank you so much for the privilege of your time hope you enjoyed the show let me know as always your feedback if you're a patron you can look forward to uh the 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 new version of father roderick to the max at the end of the week you can also join us live it's always at four o'clock central european time on friday afternoon so uh that's 16 16 0 16 0 hours how do you say that we don't have am pm in in europe we have 1600 1600 hours which is minus six so that's 10 o'clock eastern time minus three seven o'clock yeah, 7 o'clock Pacific time, I think. Anyway, you can work it out. So join us live or join us afterwards by listening to the podcast. And of course, you can look forward to the first deep dive episode coming soon to the patrons of $5 and more. And um, may, maybe not every episode will be something you're interested in, but then I'm going to make sure that there is something for everyone. So uh, hope you enjoy that. Let me know your feedback in the comments via social media or if you're a patron on the discord server always love to hear from you and love to hear your ideas and your opinions as well have a wonderful week and we'll talk soon god bless